believe me, I'm sure my wife would rather go see a movie. This is the way it works, and I know better than that. Crab duck? Duck crab. You'll do anything to win an argument. Never thought about that, but you're right. Well, it must have happened to somebody. I mean, they wouldn't make it up completely, right? It's a good story. It must be so funny being in on it. Why would I lie? We're the ones who are going to have to deliver. This is what they call a special summer storyline. You have so much to offer. Do you feel you don't deserve his love? Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. Each week, we take a close look at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015. Gearing our conversation around the conversation the show is having about the gender, patriarchy, and imported beer from Holland. Now, Will, I got to tell you something. I got to be honest with you. What's up? You should be listening to podcasts, not hosting them. With okay. a box of bonbons on your lap to soothe <laughs> your cravings. There you go. And, uh, Mike, you embarrassed me. You embarrassed me. Oh, I don't even know what I did. What did I do? You knew I would host this podcast because you know me so well. You know everything about me. Can I, can I just say, she should be embarrassed because that was one of the worst dinner menus I have ever heard. <laughs> if I was at that party, I would just be like, ah, Oh, no. It was just, I get the theme. The they did not go together. Too, where she's like, imported beer from Holland. <laughs> it's like, oh, imported, it's Landshark. Imported beer from San Diego or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you mean that hoppy beer I drink when I play golf? Awesome. The other, the other thing I thought about opening with was I was just going to like randomly at you, Mike, and be like, damn it, Mike, I know you're having an affair. I know about you and that Mad Men podcast. How could you? Those co-hosts are so old. It could, you know, I, there is another one for sure. We we call ourselves uh, uh, girls gaust. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's actually all about Jimmy Barrett. I had a, I had a bunch of these too. I had one for Will. Where I was going to be like, Will, I went through all your things. All I found were stacks of cocktail napkins with stupid podcasting on them. And then, oh yeah, I was going to ask you, Mike, why you're slamming a chair into the ground. Did your spouse cheat on you or something? Do you think that the iPhone has essentially replaced cocktail napkins for ideas, like jotting them down? You Does anyone use app? napkins anymore? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's true. Well, we had, Mike, we had the PDA era. Remember PDAs? You'd whip that out and just write your little notes on an electronic device? I'll be honest, John. I have no, like the Palm Pilot? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, there was the Palm PDA, Pilot. There were a bunch of different brands. I hear PDA and I just think of like making out with my girlfriend in public. <laughs> well, you remember like uh, that movie Max Keeble's Big Move with Orla- and Orlando Bloom is in it. Oh wait, he's absolutely I love Max that movie. Keeble was in Max. Or, sorry, uh, Orlando Bloom was in Max Keeble. Yeah, Max Keeble was it in an Orlando yeah. Bloom movie? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, he's the one. He's like the business kid with. He has like a Palm Pilot kind wow. of. Wow, what a movie that was. Max Keeble's there you big go. Move. They should. He now, should make another big move. Why is he not doing that already? We'll be making our big move. Legacy sequel for Disney Max Plus. Keeble, yeah, Max Keeble is going to be the next uh, topic of after Mad Men is done. Yeah, but I just imagine more Max. like uh, Mike. If you see Election, yeah, yeah, like it would be like that. But like Max Keeble's in like the Matthew Broderick position. Well, and, no, like, you see, like, they're going to do it. They're going to do another election. Yeah, Max, no, I heard about Max, that. Max, Max Keeble is the next Black Adam. Okay, he's he's gonna change the hierarchy of the DC suit, the DC Cinematic Universe. Yeah, 
Yeah, he's the new uh, Superman, new Max. Cal- uh, yeah, Henry Cavill, Max Keeble. Um, okay, so this episode is a night to remember. And Mike, Whoa. we're happy to have you back. Well, I guess we should um, say it makes sense. I'm I'm sorry it's a trip over my, uh, Mike's introduction, but I was going to say it would be fitting if he was there because that service is now called Max. So yeah, there you go. I'm glad you you yeah, I know. I'm glad brought I'm everything to a yeah. complete halt for yes. that. Well, it was very to. worth it. This guy stinks. <laughs> <laughs> oh brother <laughs> so mike uh we've missed you the last couple of weeks you've been busy uh hosting a different madman podcast and bringing them your analysis but you decided to return to the mean streets of madman your roots you know and uh yeah did you, so i'm guessing you rewatched or re-binged or whatever you did with all the other episodes you missed yeah i did let's just say so i yeah i was busy i had to take the fall for the the bay of pigs <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> it all came down on me, man. But, you know, I'm still rich, and I still go to country clubs, so mm-hmm. it hasn't been too bad. Yeah. What did you think of... Uh, so, the ones you missed were, I think, Maiden Form and the Gold Violin, right? Yeah. I really enjoyed specifically the Golden Violin. I love, like, getting more of Sal and April Kepner, his wife. Um, that's a Grey's Anatomy joke for all of you uh, single men out there who haven't been forced say, to watch like, Grey's Anatomy I mean, yet. Is that the actress's name? I don't. <laughs> no, she. That's it's the she plays April Kepner in Green's Anatomy. But um, you know, I, it's you're beginning to. I, I I specifically was so excited for Will because you you hate hate and you always talk about it. And John will let you know like he's gonna get redeemed. And he he just cares about his story. He wants his friend to care about his golden violin. He writes just for fun. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, we were yeah we talked about that last week. How it was kind of like a blending of. Uh, the character I love the most, Sal, and the character I understand the least, Ken, coming together in this mutual moment of understanding. And it's like a beautifully poetic moment for our podcast Reminds conversation the and the time. show. Will and, I, Will and I did a podcast together. You know, he was obviously Sal in the scenario. I, I was, was obviously uh, Ken lighting I was a, a cigarette. Bit, I was a little bit country and you were a little bit rock and roll and we figured it out. <laughs> yeah. And then Mike had to like step in as Kitty and kind of interrupt everything. Harry Crane. <laughs> I love TV. The more of a face of it, though. Yeah, one one thing we brought up is that Matthew Weiner really loves the episode Maiden Form, and you know, Maiden Form is like an interesting episode. It's like a, it's a weird one. You know, it it's one that's like I think ties into a night to remember in a lot of key ways because there's like the scene where Joan has like her like she's taking her undergarment off, and you have like the, you know, the the mark, the reddened groove there that kind of symbolizes the the weight of the patriarchy and all that good stuff. Uh, which is kind of a tie back to Maiden Form because that episode was kind of about that. But a, a lot of people prefer Gold Violin, and I understand why because I mean that's a that episode packs like that episode like moves with like so much energy. But what about a night to remember? So this episode, uh, this one has a pretty packed pedigree behind the camera. We have Robin Veith, uh writing here. Robin Veith, who has done a bunch of episodes at this point. Matthew Weiner writes, and then it's directed by Leslie Linka Glatter. Uh, she did 5G and what was we talked about her recently. Oh, yeah. Okay. The Benefactor. Uh, so this is her last episode of season two. And uh, yeah, so this we're on episode eight. Uh, at this point in 1962, we're somewhere in the late summer. So this is because uh, Memorial Day was a ways back. Like that was back in um, maiden form. And at this point, we're either in early August or late July. And I just want to I just want to say real quick, 
I really like the title of this episode because this is one of the few titles that I think kind of nicely ties all the different plots together. Like you can kind of like Night to Remember kind of applies to everybody pretty equally, right? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, you're talking like Joan being excited for that as the world turns, it's going to be a, a night to remember. Obviously, it's going to be a night to remember for Betty and Dawn because of uh, what happens there. And then uh, that, that's the name of the uh, event that Peggy plans. And what am I forgetting? Um, I think that's it. Well, oh yeah, because you mentioned like the Harry Crane one too. Yeah, and I, I I wanted to bring up a couple of things, but first, guys, I know I've been a bit of a, a bit of a ham, you know, not a John Ham, uh, weirdly enough, because my name. But I've been a little bit mean about season two. It's not my favorite. This is like my least favorite like series of episodes, and it's confusing because like I, it's not even that like any one individual episode is bad. It's just I don't love how all the episodes kind of go together. I don't love the overarching thing. And I think a lot of it has to do with like the the awkwardness with Father Gill and Peggy. It has to do with how much I dislike, purposely so, I guess, Jimmy Barrett and Bobby Barrett, who aren't even in this episode, really, except for like Jimmy and like one quick thing. But what about you guys? Are, are you kind I, of feeling like I'm ridiculous? No, I, I totally agree. I think specifically, specifically with, uh, you know, mini Tom Hanks as a priest, it's like uh, not even a through line of the of the relationship they had, right? Because like at first, um, over like the three Sundays, it's, I feel like kind of a bit of like palpable sexual tension a little bit. And then it ends with such a negative mean thing that really hurts Peggy. And now it's just like, Oh no, Peggy's still going to church and they're still talking. And like, there's none, it doesn't feel like there's any of that past history there. Uh, he doesn't like ever bring up like more of the kid or anything like that, or even ask like, you got to go home to your son tonight because I don't think he truly knew what happened with the kid. And, um, and I just don't really like his character either. And maybe that's just like, they're playing off of Catholicism where like, you don't really actually talk about what's going on, but I, I really don't like that, that the character thread that they have going right now. Well, you look rare and a go. You look like Mike just right done pissed you off. He said mean no. things about Colin Hanks. Catholicism. Well, that, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely take some issue with uh, saying disparaging things about Colin Hanks, though. I mean, I, I thought, Mike, you would be a big fan of the Orange Crush alum himself, uh, but I guess not. Mike, how would you feel about uh, Colin Hanks showing up in uh, White Lotus Season 3? Guys, I, I like Colin Hanks. Like, I'm a big fan of his villain turn in Dexter, right? Never I seen Dexter? Um, yeah, never. I only saw the first season of Dexter. Maybe that's what we'll wow. do after Mad Men. Guys, you really got to do man. Dexter after, man. Dexter's well, so good. Point Dexter's. I did see the series finale for Dexter. And that, that uh, Which one? There's from, two. Well, Which the, one? the original ending. I saw that one in college. Then you haven't remember. seen the finale yet, then, you liar. <laughs> but I, I heard that one was also not very good. Guess you'll have to watch it at a party oh, okay. and find out. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who forgot, uh, that that's the main way that Will watches television is at college parties where it's playing on the background of the TV. Uh, uh, that sounds gross now. <laughs> so, Will, we're, uh, we are, so, you know, allegedly in uncharted territory for you. You're watching this for the first time, unless you're about to say right now, it's like, well, slow down, John. <laughs> One time I was at like a Pizza Hut and they were playing this episode, you know, in the arcade. So no, I caught no. glimpses of it. Can't say that's the case for me this time. So what do you think? What do you do? You, uh, do, you, do you agree with that idea? Because it is a bit of a slow burn of a season, too. 
it, it's like the consequences of people's actions don't come to fruition very quickly, which it's kind of a mad men thing in general. Do, do you think that's an issue? Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to say because you guys are watching this having seen it like more in a binge fashion where you kind of watch it either more consistently than we are or you guys just kind of, you know, however you watched it before, you kind of probably sped through season two faster than I am watching it now. And I feel like because we like do it on like a week by week basis and analyze and stuff, I'm able to appreciate it more. But I will say like, I do feel like this season, maybe even more so than the first one, gets a little repetitive in its themes and it doesn't feel... Uh, I feel like it takes a lot of risk. And it does do a lot of things I find very interesting. In some ways, it feels a little bit more fleshed out, a little bit more mature. Like I said uh, in previous episodes, a little bit more cinematic uh, and a little bit more novelesque too uh, in its approach. But I, I, I think I'm kind of uh, on your side and not on your side on this one in that respect. Because I think overall, I am favorable. I, I really appreciate what the season's doing. I think this is also a good episode. But I do find myself kind of missing more of the zippiness of that first season. I I did run a bit of a science experiment to this point. Um, mm. You know, I just know Hannah so well. My my girlfriend, for listeners, she's the best. You should look her up. Fiance. Uh, I was yeah. going to say fiance. Oh, fiance. Sorry. Yeah. Excuse me. Mazda. Fiance. I always mess that up. Yeah, fiance um, to remember. But, uh, she's, never seen, she's never seen Mad Men. It's not exactly her cup of tea. She's more of a Riverdale kind of gal. But uh, so typically when I watch the episodes for the show, especially because I'm like, taking notes and also just paying attention, I'll do it on my own time but last night i watched it while she was in the room right she was technically watching it kind of and in the middle of the episode she was like what is this show even about <laughs> she just because she was like she was so confused because this especially this episode you know there's so much out of the office events that are happening and like so and you're right all these stories are kind of wrapping up together or being told um, under like the theme of Night to Remember. So there's just so many different plot lines in this episode. Really tough one to go in blind. So oh, yeah. uh, she would not give this Heineken a good review. She did not I, purchase this at the market. Would you say that last night was a night to remember? No, I would not. For <laughs> Hannah, it was not a night to remember. It was. <laughs> yeah, because to your point, like it's already a show that it's not a lot of episodes are standalone. We have gotten a few of those like in season one because it was more of an episodic feel. But at this point, these episodes are feeding into each other so much that it is it is pretty hard to just kind of come in and be like, so is it about advertising? Like, what is this? Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I can, it, it, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, I think it's tough. Like that. I feel like even if you even if it's not a standalone episode, I feel like if you watch an episode of something, you can kind of understand like what the hook is or how all these characters are connected and just thought it was really interesting. She couldn't pick that up last night. So I don't know if that's an issue with Hannah or just the, the show being a bad example of uh, this well, episode being a bad example of that. So, I mean, the first season I think is a little bit more deliberately uh, promiscuous and kind of sexier. And it's a little bit more kind of having a little bit more flash and having a little bit more kind of, uh, you know, exciting, uh, talkable moments. And this is a little bit more weighted, contemplative, uh, obviously a little bit darker and more mature and a little bit more heavy in what it's trying to say and what it's trying to do. So I can see like someone coming into this cold would be maybe a little put off by what's going on, especially an episode like this where it's meant to be a little bit more climactic as far as like what's going on with Dawn and, and Betty. But yeah, yeah, that makes sense. This is a big payoff to season one because Betty confronts Dawn about something that has been in the air since the end of that season when the audience finds out like we know 
that Betty knows that Don is cheating on her. And all this time has passed and she just has not confronted him about it for all kinds of different reasons. So definitely good to get into that. I was going to mention, since you mentioned it, Mike, I mean, I, I always watch Mad Men on my own. Um, Melissa, my wife, has never, I don't think she's ever watched the show. And I think mo- most of it is because she's like, we, we don't, we, when we watch TV shows together, it's usually something we're both seeing for the first time. She doesn't like it if it's like, oh, I, I already watched this. I'll watch it with you. She's like, no. Nah like let's watch this together because neither of us have seen it like that kind of thing so we'll watch like new shows and stuff like that and not not much, yeah. like she, she doesn't like watch like a a lot of stuff that has already like she doesn't re-watch things a lot you know like some people like really yeah. like to rewatch things like the office and all that and i gotta admit i don't rewatch things nearly as much as i used to i used to like do that as like a comfort thing but like now it's just mad men so yeah well the, we basically only have one show we watch together and that's Graham barrett <laughs> yeah i mean 30 episodes of greenland by abc 39 uh, thank you thank you well, oh yeah you just watched the episode so uh, uh okay did hannah enjoy white lotus well we gotta say that for our other secret podcast uh, yeah, we'll sure. talk about it soon i no, forget i guess for it, listeners but... don't know I, I the reason i keep mentioning white lotus uh, it's been a big thing for mike and i but john uh out of spite is choosing not to watch the show so he's been excluded from these white lotus White Lotus is John's Mad Max Fury Road. He hates it. Whatever. I have seen it. it. I've no, seen you, like you saw episodes. three episodes from season one. You watched half the first season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It didn't grab me. Oh, um, maybe maybe cool, you'll watch but... it at a party someday. Cool. He just doesn't care. He's like uh, John and Betty having a picnic. He just leaves his fucking trash. And he just does not give a damn. <laughs> All right. Let, let's get into this episode. Different storylines to get into here. Uh, the episode opens with Betty, like riding the horse and everything. And I, okay. So this is an interesting thing. I was looking at the commentary, uh, for the, like the DVD of this episode and Matthew Weiner mentions that he thinks he says that Betty was initially using the horseback riding like earlier in the season as a way to sort of vent her sexual frustration, but now she's doing it to vent her anger. So it's kind of like, when we get to the part where she's like slamming the chair and I kind of got the sense that that chair was Dawn's chair because when she's slamming the chair and the kids look horrified, um, specifically Sally later on, she, uh, Betty's the one who has the replacement chair, but then Dawn is on the other side of the table and there's like this serious like gap between them that I thought was very interesting. Like I think part of it could be like formal, but I do think that it's all kind of intentional to sort of show us that like there's never been this much distance between Don and Betty. So there, there's a lot of stuff like that in this episode. I think like there's so much in this episode going on with the way that like Betty can't verbalize what she's feeling. Did, did either of you guys pick up on uh, anything like that? Yeah. That's why I was also like just impressed that Betty did like ex- explicitly call him out. Right. Because I think so much of it, Exactly. It was his frustration of up on the horse. It was his frustration of the, the chair. But to finally actually be able to like accuse him of it. But then in, in that whole conversation, like be right the entire time. Like through mm-hmm. all of Don's gaslighting. Like everything like she said as a viewer, you're like, Oh yeah, Betty, like you are one hundred percent correct. He is lying. Like he he, he doesn't say like um uh, that's a second conversation, but um, it's just it's unlike it's definitely unlike Betty season one, right? Who like 
when she had things she was going to deal with, she became like, not like delirious, but kind of like handled them in like a, I don't know, weird suburban housewife kind of way and like crashing her car and shooting a bird while smoking and all, all these things. But now she's like actually standing, standing up for herself, but not standing up for herself with like these wild accusations with like really succinct, true statements about how she's feeling and what she thinks is going on. Yeah. And then also like throughout the, uh, season half that we've seen her she's like a lot more interested in keeping up appearances and like you know keeping the house kind of a lot more pristine and stuff and this time we like see her lead the dirty dishes out like kind of choosing to let them kind of like fester out and stay open and obviously like she's digging through the closet and she keeps the outfit on for the night before with like the strap kind of falling down and her hair is a little bit more uh displaced and things like that so you can kind of see like her you know allowing herself to kind of not keep up appearances and like, you know, choosing to kind of let the facade die out and not acknowledge openly that like what this reality that she's kind of been trying to keep or hoping to keep is just not there anymore. I want to put a pin on that because I want to talk about probably my favorite scene in the whole episode, which is when she is like talking to Don while he's on the couch. But as we lead into that, I want to know you what you two think about really the whole breakdown of their entire marriage at this point what sort of triggers beggy uh beggy oh my goodness betty to uh betty and peggy uh have a relationship by the way will later <laughs> that's their couple name Beggy. Uh, yeah. that's what the stands <laughs> called them <laughs> so uh so betty gets really upset with don right she says that he embarrassed her because of the heineken thing that he does heineken by the way which they literally went to the the showrunners and were like, we want our product to be featured in Mad Men. And they're like, sure, you can be in the episode where we'll use your beer to destroy a marriage, the central marriage of the show. Well, I mean, and they're like, sure. It's also kind of funny that that is in, in an episode where they like call attention to the idea of like, well, we don't like, you know, advertisers don't want their product used to a negative connotation. Like that's something I was going to bring that up. Yeah. yeah. So if you watch carefully, the episode is kind of constructed like Dawn and Betty are like a TV show. Like they're the soap opera, the drama and Heineken and all that stuff is product placement. And it's literally like the advertising and Sterling Cooper are kind of like the commercials. So it's like mirroring perfectly the entire storyline with Harry and Joan. But then what's brilliant about that is that the Joan stuff also mirrors that like her scene with Greg, uh, Dr. Boyfriend guy. Uh, It's actually really well done. Like I, I was more impressed with it this time around watching it than I have been in the past. Yeah. And I think that's something that's been pretty, I mean, we talked about that already, but like more so than I think the last season, the idea, the idea that you can't really separate work and home life and that they're for these characters almost like, uh, you know, it intertwined in a way that they can't really untangle has been so present with this episode. Yeah. Like obviously the last shot really hammers at home, but then like, yeah, you have like Joan reading the scripts at home, like Don knowingly kind of doing the Heideken thing, uh, inviting them like the coworkers to his house. I mean, that makes it evident. And also, you know, like, uh Peggy inviting uh you know Colin Hanks to the the office and stuff like the, these all these little yeah. things that like show that like these characters are just unable and and frankly kind of want that intertwining uh it, as Don sees it's like healthier for his work if uh, he has like a thriving home life that intertwines into his work but you know at what cost leading into the central question I think for the entire episode a lot of people tend to wonder this especially when they watch the episode the first time because it might seem a little random, honestly, at first. Like, why does 
the Heineken thing at the dinner party set Betty off. Because, you know, Don even says to her, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. He seems genuinely confused over why she's so upset about this. And I think there's a clear reason, but I want to know if either of you had any predominant theories about this or, you know, if you had any thinking about it that's like changed or ebbed or flowed or whatever. So yeah, Mike, where, where, where are you at with this? What, what, what's going on? Does she just hate Heineken beer that much? Yeah, she's a racist. Um, plain and simple, John. Against Holland. No. Um, I think it's just because she's not in on it, right? I think Betty is so tired of feeling like she's not, you know, up to date in John and John's life and Don's life, um, in, included in things, especially when it comes to like work. Um, it kind of is like uh, what Jimmy says to her on the couch when he's talking to her. You know, you know, he's over there and we're over here and they don't care. And I think it was just a, a moment that really sparked that. She, everybody at the table seemed to know about what was happening with the Heineken, and she was just, you know quote-unquote, a victim of it. And she just didn't want that. She didn't want to be on the outs. She's tired of being on the outs with Don. She feels like she doesn't even know the man. I, I really like that because that, that ties into something I've been thinking about, how she's not far in age from a lot of the other young characters in this episode. She's actually younger than Joan, right? She's in between Peggy and Joan, who both have storylines in this episode where, essentially, people don't take them seriously. And that's how Betty feels like all three of these women are on the outs. That's a really good point. Uh, but what about you, Will? Uh, did, was there anything you know that stuck out to you about that? Because well, mm-hmm. I kind of have a different take. Um, I think that's somewhat true. The joke I was going to make is that she's a proud Nordic, but uh, Mike kind of stole my thunder there for that, that one. But um, no, I was going to say. I mean, I think her, it her also, people are Nordic. Yeah, people are Nordic. Yes. Um, I mean, I think there is something to be said about like how she's still. Uh, internalizing her mother's loss and that the idea like she never really felt respected by her mom the idea that like in adulthood she she still has like kind of like a child perception of reality because she she never really felt like she could grow up and and that's kind of we're seeing that uh bleed a little bit more into sally draper and like there's even one scene here where sally kind of takes on the role of the mom and and betty is like the one in bed and even you know, that scene where Betty is in the, the kids' room with um, Sally and Bobby. The idea, like, she's, I guess, emotionally at this point, a little bit regressing because she feels like she isn't respected as an adult, as, like, the partner to Dawn. And in that moment, she is seen as, like, kind of, like, you know, something, like, infantile, like, something that's not, she, she's not respected among the peers. Like, she's seen as, like, an other or, like, a child, like, talked down to. And I feel like that kind of festers into her resentment towards dawn that's already been building up between a season and a half of television but now like she just fully doesn't have his respect and she knows this information that she's been kind of withholding but you know doesn't want to believe it's like you know coming to a boil this is really cool because i have a totally different take and i don't even think that's wrong at all uh, and i think that's just like kind of the beauty of the scene but th- the way i've always interpreted this is that it ties into the part where she's digging through the nap, like the the desk and finding all the advertising slogans. And I think it really, really bothers Betty that her entire life is just a facade for this guy to make money. And I think that when this, all this stuff happens, like the Heineken thing, she feels manipulated. She feels controlled. Like he is maneuvering their life in order to sell advertising that to everything, like all of this stuff, like 
Don doesn't care about it. He doesn't care about her. That's why I think she asks him, like, do you even love me? She just feels like she's being used. Like, that's why when he says, like, I use our life in my work all the time, that does not make her feel better because to her, she's like, you're, she's like, this guy isn't real. And I think the reason she knows that everything that Don is putting up as a facade is because she's doing the same thing. She is putting up the facade. She's sort of like, you know, that's why I think the brilliant scene in this is when she confronts him in the moonlight. Because up until that point, I, I, again, I love the way the lighting kind of shifts throughout this episode. There are a lot of different scenes where the lighting tells so much of the story and where I think it shines best is in that scene where she doesn't have makeup on. She doesn't have any dress on. She's just, she's just wearing her, you know, her pajamas and it's in the moonlight. It's like a cool sort of like, it feels pure. It feels clean and honest. That's the moment where she tells Don that She's, she's just like, you don't, you don't say you love it. Like she finally confronts him about all the things that have really been bothering her. And in this moment, I think the reason that she gets upset even further is because Don doesn't do the same thing. He's still lying. He's still being inauthentic and she well, can't get past that. I was going to ask you about that. You think there's no dick at all in that moment with Don? I think it's still a matter of he's both. He's dick and he's Don. He's think, dick trying yeah. to justify Don's existence. I think that last time where he's just like, I want to keep you and the family is the dick moment. Like, I think that's him like being, you know, sincere. But like, I think it kind of it, it takes a while for him to kind of get to that kind of realizing that like that what's at stake. But I mean, I feel like, you know, I think the still- most dick moment is when he's on the bed and like she like the, like the night before. Oh, when she goes like over to the kids' room, yeah, and he opens his eyes, his eyes and yeah. that to me is like that's Dick Whitman right there because okay. it mirrors. It's so well done. It mirrors exactly like Sally's expression when Betty is slamming the chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Mike, is there something yep. you want to tell us, Mike? You want to be honest with us about something? I know I don't say I love you. You, you don't, and you don't look me in the eye. Yeah, I do. Uh, it all the are time. we? Can we? Can we comment at least? Betty does a really great job, and I think it makes sense why she does it. But Don's whole role in the conversation, all the different modes of gaslighting that he tries, it's like, uh, you know, it's like he's um, like an action hero facing a, an alien he's never seen before. And like he's trying these like different moves and he's like, no, that one was ineffective. Move on to the next one. Or, wow. um, it's like first, like he's like, what are you talking about? And then uh, then he gets like aggressive. Right. And he like walks towards her and he's like say it say what you know and then still like that doesn't work and he's like you know birdie like what is like you're crazy like and then he goes on to the defense of like well it's actually on you because you make jimmy want to fuck you and yeah. all, all these things classic abuser behavior yeah i was going to mention too like right before that stuff happens when he's on the couch i think it is pretty interesting that this is right after gold violin right because in the last episode it was Sal who tells Kitty, like, go to the couch, put your feet up, I'll take care of the kitchen. And then in this episode, we see, you know, in this instance, Don has no interest whatsoever in, like, anything that just happened, all the work that Betty just did for the dinner party, like, none of that stuff. And, like, that's, I don't know, I feel like that's got to rub her the wrong way, too, right? I mean, she doesn't even bring it up, but it's still, it's like, it's such a dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I, I kind of took uh, that moment with them in the moonlight, is like, he's still kind of like, 
going through advertiser mode in his head. Like he's like realizing it's not so much like his marriage that's sick, but like he's losing the deal and he's like kind of trying these things. And then like at that final moment, he does the emotionally honest searching thing because like, that's kind of like what he did before when like, when all else fails, he goes towards his family like he did with the carousel. Yeah. But I think that's still, that's the reason why it doesn't work. Because he's still saying, like, I don't want to lose yeah, all this. Right. And it's like, Betty Betty knows that. She's like, it, but to her, he, he doesn't know her as well as he thinks he does. Because she doesn't care that he, like, what his intent, or sorry, she doesn't care that he wants the children and all that stuff. Because to her, he's just, he he wants it because he needs it for his job. She doesn't get any of the the sort of genuine, oh, you actually love us and the me and the kids. You actually want us here because you want us here. The advertising thing is second. So yeah, it, to me, I, she just doesn't buy it. But then later in the episode, okay, so then things kind of seem like maybe you know she she's dressed up and everything, and they're watching a TV show called Make Room for Daddy, pretty on the nose. But then the Jimmy Bear commercial comes on, and some people might look at that and be like, oh, you know that it triggers her, right? You know, she sees that and she's like, I am mad. And then she calls Don and is like, don't come home. But I don't think that that's the case. But what do you, what do you two think? Wh- which of you wants to, Mike, I, I feel like uh, you have a little theory. Here. Yeah. She was like, all right, this is the fucking commercial. Like this is what Don's agency had to do to start this, <laughs> this domino effect and ruin my marriage. Like this commercial sucks. And then it just made her think of work. And then she's like, don't come home, Don. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, there is something interesting about like how like in that moment just before, like she's dressed up again, like her hair is come. Like, so it, it seemed like she was before that kind of willing to make things work in a way. Like she was willing to kind of keep the facade still going. But then she was going to be classic Betty. Right. You, you think, you know, oh, she's OK. She's going to just get over it. Yeah. Or she's going to believe Don that nothing happened. Yeah, or just, you know, suppress it and keep it to the uh the horse racing um uh, uh exercises. But yeah, I mean I I mean, yeah, I guess I I just see it as another example of like the work and home life are kind of intertwined, like the ad that they've been working on for so long uh and so hard it's, it's now on TV and it it does kind of build that resentment. It does kind of remind her that like things you know, how many times can she repeat this behavior and know that Dawn's not going to learn anything? It's just like, yeah, I, I guess I didn't look at it as deeply. I think it was just kind of just like that moment where it just kind of clicked in the place. Like, the thing she always knew, but just wanted to lie about and kind of keep the facade going. She just realized like, no, it's just, it's just going to keep going no matter how long I keep doing this. So I just have to put a stop to it now. The, the thing I picked up here that I hadn't before, and it makes this episode a little bit smarter than I gave it credit for, honestly, is that it it ties so well into what Harry says earlier to Joan, right? Of like reading the scripts, make sure the commercials that come after the shows don't trigger people, right? That the thing that you're selling to somebody doesn't like the facade doesn't break. Right? Where, you know, the amazing agitator thing with Maytag. And then with, you know, make sure when a kid pushes the food away that it isn't Corton's fish sticks. And I think in this scene, Nobody like read the script for, you know, a a sitcom that's about like, you know, a perfect family called Make Room for Daddy, that it's followed up with the image of the guy who told you that your husband cheated. (laughs) I think that it's, it is a simple thing. It's as simple as 
she is trying to settle into the soap opera, the drama, the sitcom, the facade, but then the advertising breaks her out of it. It's such a really nice, like multi-layered moment of the episode that I think digs at you subconsciously. It makes you feel all kinds of emotions for her. And I think that's what makes this episode a little bit better than I honestly have ever really assumed. And yeah, I, I think like there's so much in this episode too about, you know, like, like little moments, like when Betty steps on the broken glass, you know, and, it, and it's like, oh, you know, because like they can't piece their marriage back together. Um, I'm trying to do more symbolism because we got that review. Sure. I, <laughs> and somebody was like, do more symbolism, please. Right. So I'm uh, trying. I was wondering in that moment, because initially we don't see like what broke. I mean, I know we saw the glass before, but we didn't see that what broke. I was wondering if they were going to get kind of heavy handed with like a photo of Don and Betty. And that's like what broke. But I'm glad they didn't go that direction. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's like you, you could read it as like the at a wedding, you know, like when you break glass and everything. So I was like, just going to say that it's yeah, yeah, stepping yeah. on the glass at the wedding and now it's hurting them. Yeah. Is this also, is, are any part of you guys though, like, just because Don is Don and, and he like, he's, you know, John Hayden's portrayal of him is truly so likable for being such an unlikable guy. Like, are, like I still, I still find myself, even though I know what happens, simply like, ah, oh, fucking Jimmy ruining shit. Or like, <laughs> Betty, just forget it. It's okay. I don't know. Like, so there's still part him. of me rooting <laughs> for Don in this situation. And I should not be because he sucks well, so hard. Isn't that kind of what advertisement is in a way, if you want to get, you know, meta with it it's like the idea it's that symbolism. you want to believe you want to believe the lie you want to believe the sitcom family is real or whatever you kind of want you want that to be real and that's what don well, i think the show is more well i think the show is more about how television and us watching stories is itself advertising because i think we are being at like don draper is a concept being advertised to us and i think the reason we don't want his marriage to end even though he's a bad person is because we understand how TV shows work, right? He's the main character. He's the anti-hero, which means that we believe he can be redeemed. We believe that Betty just needs to, he can't lose her because they need to reconcile, right? Because we believe that the showrunners are going to give him a redemption arc so that they're going to, everything's going to be fine. So it's not that we think that he deserves to be with her. It's that we have this view of what a TV show is that doesn't jive with real life. Mm -hmm. I think that's why Mad Men is such a good show. It's because it's more realistic than that. Yeah. And I mean, I like that we have um, that montage, like you said, that kind of pays back to uh, Maiden Form, where we see everyone, like, you know, like not like nude, but like kind of stripping their clothes. Like, you know, obviously uh, Joan has the strip. We see Peggy in the bathtub. We also see, uh, you know, like Don, his undershirt. And at the uh, beginning, Betty, like when Betty, she, after the horse, you know, yeah. she takes off her, her clothes there. Yeah. And then with and then, Peggy, uh, I thought that that was, I, I wondered if that was like a nod to baptism too, because they had talked about communion and holy yeah. water and she's still, like, she's not submerged. Yeah. yeah. Cause she's still above and she brings the water to her face yeah. instead of like, you know, fully like diving into the expectations of the church. Yeah. yeah. Because she's for, not able to uh, take communion. That's such a keep, like she's willing to like you know, help others and other, but she doesn't want to like, you know, seek full redemption. Or, what yeah. is communion, but a dinner party where yeah. people can confess to each other. What is true, but Don can confess to Betty. Yeah. It's a good episode. And for uh, Joan, I, I, I was thinking that was like, uh, the, the weight of the facade on her shoulders of like mm -hmm. her role at work and playing into 
you know, just being the helper and not being upset that she just lost the job she actually enjoyed doing. Um, yeah, I hate I that. that was it's like, such a heartbreaking scene, you know, when it's clear that Harry is giving it to one of his buddies because, like, they even have the part where they're joking around at the beginning, so it's clear they know yep. each other. And, like, the guy is unqualified, and then Joan has to just sit there or stand there and just be like, oh, I'll help you do the job that I am qualified for. Yeah. And you know who would be a great person for her to go talk to and figure this out? Fucking Peggy. But who has Joan been a huge old dick to this entire season? Peggy. Well, she wouldn't talk to Peggy about it, right? Because to no. her, she would probably feel like she c- couldn't do what Peggy did. But it's really more of like Peggy was lucky, or not even lucky because Peggy earned it. But she's just like the the circumstances happened to work out in her favor that Don gave her a job because he wanted to spite Pete, right? And in this case, like I think this episode is showing that that doesn't always work out. The person who deserves a job doesn't always get it. Sure. Um, but I did also want to, I mean, just before I forget, I did want to mention that, like, I did appreciate that we're, we're kind of getting like uh, a predecessor, even though, like you said, Joan is older than um, Betty or yeah, older than Betty. Like she has kind of like that moment with her fiance, where it's, we're kind of getting the red flags there where that the relationship isn't really going to yeah. work out, but she kind of wants to believe that lie too. Like she wants to believe that the sitcoms that she's reading is like also could be her life. And she's like, you know, kind of like avoiding the, you know, the, the red flags because she wants that, that happiness. But, you know, it's pretty clear that whatever they have is going to probably not work out. Yeah, yeah. What are the red flags for you, Will? What are you talking about? Greg Harris? Uh, yeah. Dreamboat? Well, yeah. I mean, he just wants the Barbie her... trailer. He's Ken right there. Sure. Yeah, but he just doesn't want... Well, he, he obviously it's kind of user for looks, like kind of, you know, is not admiring her intelligence, admiring what she can do for the office outside of, you know, being a beautiful woman um and uh, you know like that uh and having this like ability this position where she is kind of using her sensuality to uh and her intelligence to her advantage and and now that that's kind of getting taken away from her suggests at least for me to watch the show for the first time that uh things are not going to probably go well for joan and the episodes to come as far as her uh personal and professional life but I'm excited to see what happens there. I'm, I hope the best for pet for Joan. Um, mm. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I did also want to mention the idea that like Father Gill, we also see at the end of the episode, uh, strips his cloth. You know, not fully, yeah, but he like a snake. I guess, yeah. Did did either of you expect to see like some? I don't know the way they set it up. I was like, oh man, he's gonna be like tatted, or there's uh, gonna be like some type <laughs> of reveal to be like, oh, he's got a dark side. I don't know. But I don't, well, because well, they they hint at it because like there's a scene where he's on the phone with Peggy, right? And she is lit in that scene like an angel. You know, the bright lighting, her bright clothes. She talks about like how the poster is, it's wholesome and romantic. And by comparison, Father Gill is sort of like, he's lit very dark. He's wearing the dark clothes. He's smoking a cigarette. And I think that it's all, in my opinion, to imply, right, that like he has darker intentions, that he's just doing this. He has an agenda. He doesn't really want her help. He just wants to get her to do communion because he feels like he can prove himself as a priest, that people will take him seriously if he's able to redeem or save or whatever, like white knight Peggy Olson, who like is the notorious sort of like lady on the in Madison Avenue, right? Yeah. And I appreciate that there's like compared to their previous episode, there is more distance 
between them. And that's obviously uh, suggested mm-hmm. with like the idea that like uh, those ladies are like leave room for the Holy Spirit. You know, like, you know, you got to make sure that there's how like much, a diff- how much room does the Holy Ghost need? Will Ash, I know I just I was looking at but, that poster. I was like, he could yeah, fit in there pretty fine. I think so. But I mean, I just feel like compared to like if you were to watch that episode in this episode, you could just see like the like intimacy that was there before, like the will they won't they thing. It's obviously a lot more. Like they're connected. Yeah, they're, they're not flirting yeah. as aggressively, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, I think it's because he's kind of like bringing in the pitch. Like he, it it sort of reminds me of when Don criticizes Duck. He's like, "You're selling more to me than you are to clients." And yeah, in a way, the Father Gill is kind of doing the same thing to Peggy because their relationship at this point is being framed in a business way. Like you kind of mentioned that earlier, of like the work life. You know, it's kind of mixing a little bit with Peggy and now Father Gill. Well, I was wondering, though, if like that was initially maybe his way of trying to get close with Peggy, like recognizing it's something she cares about a lot, knowing that that's something she's passionate about and like initially being more of like a, hey, like this is a way I can, you know, it would be more you helping me than me helping you, but something that like I know you're passionate about and you can help. Initially, when that scene was playing out, that's kind of, I was hopeful that that was what was going to happen, but. Well, that, well, that's the yeah. thing, right? Have Have you ever, I know the answer to this question, have you ever been in that situation where somebody is trying to get close to you in a, who is like knows you through religion and is just doing it so they can confront you about things they think that you did that were bad and then you have that moment where you realize that like oh i'm not really friends with this person they are just doing this because they feel obligated that sucks one hundred percent i mean that's how mike and i met (laughs) yeah i was gonna say i mean it's true literally (laughs) sorry i gotta say literally me and john became friends because i worked at the church that john went to one time and it was my job to text him after his first time and say, I was so happy you came. <laughs> I was gonna I wasn't gonna bring that up, but yeah. And I I saw through it, Mike. Well, of course you did. You you know, you've been you know the game, you've been involved your whole life. Mm. But it, it blossomed into a wonderful um c- colleague ship. It did? Oh, okay. Fuck That's you. beautiful, guys. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I don't know if you can relate well because uh, we we didn't yeah. we didn't meet through uh, church, unfortunately. That would have been funny if we had. Well, I mean, the church is cinema. I could say. There you go. Yeah, the movie theater is a church in its own way. Yeah, it's it, literally that's the kind of church that Mike and I met at was a movie theater church. Was it really? Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> it <really> was. <laughs> oh man, that's I'd why like I went. Think- <laughs> That's I like the, the best think- symbolism of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> the only reason Mike and I know each other is because I was like, yeah. a church in a movie theater? I got to go see that. Yeah. How's that for symbolism? There no, you go. John was just early for a showing of like, uh, I don't even know what movies are even around. No, time. Yeah, 2016. Un- unfortunately, that's not true. No, this was 2015. You're right. 2015. Yeah. Spring of 2015. I'll never forget when I met you, Mike. Hmm. He was early for a showing of Love and Mercy and it was like, well, okay. It was. I uh, do remember when that movie came out, and yeah, we didn't watch it together though. It was truly a night to remember. So yeah, um, okay. (laughs) Uh, We was there anything else with the Peggy and Father Gill stuff? I mean, we mainly focused on Don and Betty because that's the big one. I I had a couple things that I wanted to bring up, note for note. Uh, But yeah, yeah, Duck. I wanted to bring up Duck because he claimed his date canceled. But um, can we all just sort of in the room agree, like, brother did not have a date. Like, that was not the case. My brother in Christ, he did not have a date. <laughs> nope. He showed up stag and like, yeah, that's why he was selling Don earlier. And also, I like that part of the scene where, where Pete kind of like lingers in the doorway because he's kind of expecting like an invite, right? Yes, that's, an, that's like one of my favorite parts of that. Like, 
Vincent heard that like that is like he doesn't get a lot in this episode. Obviously, I think it might only be that. But he ate in that scene. It was yeah, so he did. well. Good. He's in the Heineken pitch yeah, later because I was going to mention he gets like two moments. And the, the other part where uh, the guy is just like he's like, oh, uh, you know, do you want a Heineken? He's like, it's eleven a.m. for Pete's for sake. Pete's sake. Pete. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was. <laughs> I, a lot of good I enjoyed con- that. Really yeah. good humor in this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Petra Coulson, love Petra Coulson. Uh, she has the right idea for what to do at this kind of shindig when she runs into the doorframe. <laughs> How did that get there? I love her. Emmy uh, uh, Lancaster. Or Lancaster, or how you pronounce her last name? She's from uh, Transparent and a Serious Man. I was very—I did not expect to see her. Yeah, she she pops up. I mean, this is the first thing I'd ever think I'd ever seen her in. Oh, really? Uh, me personally. Oh, can I say? And maybe this is me expecting too much, but you know, we had her. We had Betty like slamming the chair in, in her exact spot where she was sitting at the dinner table. So mm-hmm. there was a part of me that was wondering, like, she had fixed the chair, but like went and she was like wobbly and stuff before if she if the chair was gonna break with her in it like i was kind of expecting that during the dinner table oh no because <laughs> yeah no because um betty's chair is the one that like she it doesn't match all the rest of the chairs i know yeah but yeah just because of the placement of it and that was it, it, the exact spot where she sat i was there's part of my brain i was like i wonder if that's gonna be like a thing that they were foreshadowing yeah. the chair was gonna break but nope um no i just think it also makes sense that she was the one that didn't match everybody else at the table she's on the outs Mike, you're you're selling it, man. You're so persuasive. Um, and then there's also Duck is back on the wagon, for sure. Like it's confirmed, right? Because he says, oh, "I'll have something with dinner." No, actually, you know what? We don't have to say that that's confirmed. It could be that he's, you know, he's like, oh, "I'll have something with dinner," and then he just doesn't. I well, I think he doesn't have. Yeah, I don't think he does. And also, I think it's just public persona. So I don't think you can really confirm anything. I think yeah, he like plays he's doing it in close private. To his chest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Um, that I do, you know, duck, crab, crab, duck, great line, lots of great lines in this. Uh, we have the return of crab Colson. Uh, so you'll remember him from, uh, maiden form. We met him at the country club, Willow Oaks. And yeah, he works at Rogers and Cowan, which is, I, I forgot to look into this cause I, I was kind of curious, like why they have him there because I wasn't sure if Rogers and Cowan, I know it's like a brand marketing agency, but I'm not sure if it's one that works for like clients, you know? So like one where they could get in with like some big clients through him or if they're trying to poach him or have so I wasn't hundred percent sure about that. I wasn't sure if either of you boys know either way. Well, didn't he tell Don that it was like a sinking ship or like that things were, were going poorly there? I don't know. Yeah. Cause if they, if they could get a guy like crab Colson, they could bring clients with him. So yeah, that, that exactly. was just something I wasn't sure about. So That's I like that I they don't even really get happening. into it. It's just sort of like, he's a guy, he's in the biz. See, and it's not that relevant. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So what else? Oh yeah. Okay. I thought that the whole thing where Harry kind of like, gets like chastised for the television department and every, and i love like how ken is just like or like harry comes out he's like oh i, I have to do stuff i didn't even know it was my job and and ken's like how is that like you made that job up like, i just love how like funny that whole thing is and like i i really get the sense that with harry what, what's even more heartbreaking about the thing with joan is that He's only doing any of this to get ahead, right? He's not doing it because he cares or that he like has a passion for it or has a knack for it. Whereas Joan absolutely does. Like she should be head of the television department. She has like a passion for it. She could really make it into something. Harry's just doing this because he was jealous of Ken. And so that to me, that's what makes it sting all the more. 
because he gets rewarded at the end of the day. And it's even funny too, I know you mentioned like, oh, you made the job up. But I thought the funnier line was when he's talking about the things he's doing and they're like, that's what you used to do for your job. Like, you know yeah. how to do it. <laughs> There's a really nice touch uh, actually at the very beginning of the episode when you'll notice that Peggy asks Anita how her husband Jerry is because clearly things are kind of strained. It looks like the two of them are like not doing super well. And Anita is truthful with Peggy. But when the priest comes later and asks Anita how Jerry is doing, she lies and says he's doing much better. Uh, that that was a, a great way to start the episode of how, especially Anita, a character who has been kind of dishonest with the priest in past episodes, it kind of sets up this episode of how people, even people who do take communion, aren't really honest right, with the people they say they're going to be honest with. So I thought that was a nice little, little, little touch there. Um, Warren gets more in this episode. I know, uh, you guys are both big fans of Warren. I love his, the way he talks where he goes like, uh, how did, how did you do that? Uh, what do you mean? He's like, how did you talk to her like that? She's so much woman. <laughs> and he's like the same guy who goes like, uh, we're going to go to that oyster bar later. Like, I don't know. I just wish Mad Men had more characters with that accent. I think it's great. Yeah. You don't have enough accents in this show. That's super true. Yeah, people need comas so that they wake up with accents. Um, I'm going through my notes here. Did did either of you have notes that you wanted to to slam in? Um, I can't. I don't know her name, but the one uh, woman that works uh, at the office. I, I like that. There's that moment where we see um, Father Gill at the printer thing, and then like she like comes in yeah. to go into the room, sees Father Gill, and leaves. I thought that was a really nice little touch. <laughs> yeah, it's really yeah. Um, I was going to bring up how uh, it's so on the nose when the episode's called Night to Remember and then Don even says out loud, like, literally no one is going to remember that because she's talking about like, oh, they're just going to remember that Petra Coulson, Mr. Chair or whatever. Yeah, I was also going to, I don't think we ever brought it up too when we were talking about Peggy at the CYO meeting, but just like tough for her, like her characterization, you know, she's at this point not being taken seriously at work and now she's being brought in as his expert and still not being being taken seriously. Like even... Yeah. In, in that situation. So I feel like I, I've been there too, going back to like the church world where like you're just trying to help people and, and you know, do the right thing. Like a lot of this came when I was doing like video editing for churches and there are people involved who just are involved because they've been going to the church for 30, 50 years and have opinions that just don't make sense. And it's just so frustrating. Like I was so frustrated for Peggy in that meeting. Yeah. And you, you were a young guy too. I remember, you know, you were young, much younger than me at that point and uh, still are. I was 18. I was yeah. 18. Um, that's why I was like, ah, oh, this kid and his Mad Max opinions. Um, this little whippersnapper. <laughs> uh, but I didn't pat him on the head or anything like that because he was obviously like taller than me, I think. Uh, but then I, I really, I, we kind of touched on it, but when Betty is rifling through like really like the season one Easter eggs, right? We see the, the advertising from like, oh, what do women want? An excuse to get closer. We also see some stuff from season two, like, uh, Sally's like, I love you, daddy, or happy, whatever daddy, you know, whatever it said. I, I really like this because it, for me, some like further cements how she feels like their entire life is just advertising. It's, it's just Don searching for like, he's not human. He's not, he's like sociopathic. Like he needs to artificially create moments of suburbia in order to sell a dream. And I really like this because it's a nice selling point of how 
the 50s lead into the 60s, that disillusionment of the sort of 50s era, like everything's great, here's what you need to do in order to be happy, moving into the 60s where that sort of breaks down. you know, And it also mirrors in a lot of ways going from your 20s to your 30s in terms of age, because as uh, I think you two will eventually discover, uh, sure. there is a big change that happens when you go from your 20s to your 30s because everything you think you you knew or like you felt comfortable in or that like kind of and i say this as somebody i i went into my 30s during a pandemic so maybe i'm just a little primed but like yeah the world just kind of like shows you what it really is uh you know generally speaking and so i think that that's what's happening for betty because she's 28 in season 1 so that's 1960 so she is like literally at like age 30 at this point. And so I, I like that you can kind of put that in there as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I also like that, like, even though Betty knows the truth at this point and she's just kind of looking for that smoking gun, she can't really find it because Don just does like his, his home isn't really his home as like the last shot kind of shows that like, yeah, even though he's not really like that sneaky about the affair and everything, he just has his, his life isn't really connected to his home so much that like, she can't even just find this thing that's very obvious. If anything, it, if anything, it makes it even more like confirmed for her because she he's so good at this that yeah. he's able to hide it so well. He must be doing well, this a lot. Yeah, and it just shows the facade too that like you yeah. know this home is just like a plaything for him. It's just it's not his real home. It's just the place where he you know pretends to be a family man and all this stuff. I didn't take it as like he was so good at hiding things. I took it as like he just literally doesn't care about any of it enough to have any evidence, like his family or his affairs. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah, because yeah. like what would he keep from those? Like he doesn't get his advertising inspiration from other women. Although at the same time, he he did with the uh, he did. excuse to get closer. So, but it, mm-hmm. yeah, it doesn't give away anything. But it is a Yahtzee card. I wonder if she looked at that and was like, when was he playing Yahtzee? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, there's a, well, who's the only person he would have kept something from, like right, Rachel Mencken. But yeah. at this point, like she like hurt him, and so no way he even has anything. The thing that he kept from her was the dog that he got for Sally. Yeah. So I, uh, that's something. That is something else I didn't get to mention uh, about previous episodes. Just fuck right. duck, dude. Fuck duck for doing. Oh, I thought you were going to mention we got to see Rachel again. Yeah. yeah. No, fuck duck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the dog thing. Uh, yeah, we had a bit There's of There's nothing eviler. There's nothing eviler. Yeah. When it comes uh, to like characterization of, of characters. Abandons that poor dog. Chauncey. Yeah. Poor Chauncey. I, uh, Mike, I'm excited for you to listen to that episode because uh, John and I were pitching a couple <laughs> ideas for how Chauncey could have been a big help for the office. Yeah, and like Chauncey's taking on a, big... a role of authority and like kind of air butted his way into <laughs> I, the... I, I, I you think Will is hoping you guys that were in, on the right track. <laughs> I think Will is hoping that in the, the I think Will was hoping in this episode that like they go into like the big Heineken meeting, Duck is in there, and in walks Chauncey yeah. to do a big hat executive. Yeah. It's like uh, one I'm of being replaced things. by a dog. It's, like, it's one of those bad LinkedIn posts where it's like I got into a car crash on the way to an interview. I was like really nice. It turns out the person I hit was the interviewer. Yeah, um, yeah. But I was gonna say, um, did you also think that like the fact that Betty didn't find something was also kind of a subversion for the uh, the idea? Like there wasn't like this big revelation, like this big shocking TV moment where she finds the truth, and it's just like, oh, like this is it. 
like this is the night to remember where she finds the thing that that proves it all along it's just dun, like dun, dun. right yeah, yeah. It, so you think that was a deliberate kind of choice in that respect a, a deliberate sort of subversion yeah definitely yeah because this is a show where like consequences tend to be slow and more realistic because that's how life yeah tends to work it's usually like one thing happens like jimmy barrett telling her the thing and then you know her having to stew in it um I was going to mention, because I think one of you touched on this already, how great John Hamm is in this episode. His acting is just out of this world with how he, you know, Mike, you were talking about like the way that he's like, you know, channeling different techniques for trying to manipulate Betty and Gaslighter. But I love the scene where it's the day after the night to remember and they're in the Heineken meeting and it's a small touch, you know, like you'll notice it, but it's not one of those things you notice and it's like annoyingly obvious. Don is rattled, right? There's the whole thing where like Duck is kind of doing the thing and like Don's supposed to step in and Don doesn't. He kind of like shakes his head a little bit, you know, kind of shakes himself out of it before he starts to go into Don Draper mode. But he's not smooth here like he usually is. He's kind of like, you can just tell like he didn't sleep that this whole thing is stuck on his mind and the Heineken thing is triggering him because he's like, my marriage, my marriage, my marriage is ruined. My marriage is ruined because like he's, talking about this thing that caused all these problems for him. I just, I think that it's really well done. I think Ham had a tough job there to like sell this because he's Don Draper. He's not supposed to be rattled, but yeah, he shows us like a version of Don that can be rattled, which I think is great. It reminds me of in the last season when Pete kind of confronts Don about who he really is. And like, we kind of see him a little bit like slightly shaken. Yeah. I definitely, I, that's something I also noted, and you're exactly right to call it rattled and also related to when Pete confronts him, because he's not like, he's not sad, right? He's not like, my marriage is over because he's sad about Betty. It's because this Heineken thing is reminding him that, like, he's being found out, right? It's just, it's like, um, you know, he lost a piece of his armor almost. And so he's rattled and he's feeling vulnerable, specifically not sad about what's happening. Speaking of Heineken, I don't think I have ever mentioned this, but uh, Heineken was my first beer, and which is funny because like when I see Heineken, I I do not think of fancy imported beer. I think of like, oh, Bud Light. Like it, it, it's very you know. When did you mm-hmm. have that last week? <laughs> Roasted, <laughs> bust, busting my chops left and right. I was uh, let's see, I was like thirteen around that age, and uh, I was in Puerto Rico. My uncle gave it to me, and. I hadn't eaten anything like that entire day and I had a Heineken and I thought it was really gross, but I was so hungry that I drank it and uh, it was disgusting and still is. Anyway, uh, this episode is not <laughs> sponsored by Heineken. That is for sure. Uh, actually, I, I, I had a Heineken recently cause I was in Amsterdam and uh, like they, it practically comes out of the water fountains. It was delicious. All right. Awesome, John. You're a world traveler. We get it. We have to import this stuff, but you get to have it when you go. Great transition, dude. Wow. Sorry, sorry. Hey, John yeah. John has yeah. a daughter named Sally, and she's turning to him going, Daddy, are we rich? <laughs> I love that line, and, too, by the way. Are, uh, am I allowed to talk about doing shrooms on this show? Uh, I think so. Okay, cool. So I did shrooms I over it. the weekend. Nice. <laughs> um, we, we like got a cabin out on a, on a like remote island with some friends, and we all did shrooms one night. But uh, talking about going back to John, what you were saying about you know 
going into your your 30s and having these realizations. I thought that was it. And you were just like, I just wanted to bring that up. And now you're moving on to another time. No, that was like the entirety of my trip. And like like my Mm. internal dialogue was all about like, like, I I turned 27 recently, which is, you know, still like, like not, you're still young, but getting closer to that. And it was that I felt this shift in my life of like, like I'm no longer new in my job. I'm like, there's people two, three years my junior now in, in my specific role who I'm mentoring, like I'm engaged, like all these things like in my life that I always thought like, oh, that's just where you're headed. And now I'm here and you're just trying to figure out like, oh, everything's different and not like I thought it was going to be. So I just, you, you bringing that up, John, was like my exact shroom experience. Sheesh. Yeah. Yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, we'll have to have a conversation uh, off the air then. But uh <laughs> um to that effect but okay uh i don't have that much else here um was there anything else before we get into trivia guys was there anything that you just felt like you know what mad men let's get the hot takes in well we kind of touched on this before but i wanted to kind of clarify a little bit do you think with him having the uh guitar and playing father gill i mean um mm-hmm. do you think that was supposed to be the revelation that like what he was saying before was like he's lived life that he hasn't really lived a life and that he's still kind of, you know, modest? Or do you think that that uh, was just a, like him kind of showing his inner, like, musicality, this thing that we just haven't been able to see yet because he doesn't show that to the world at this point in his life? I don't know, because do he... Th- yeah, go ahead, Mike. I do think it's important that he pulls it out and he can play literally anything and he plays, like, a religious song. Well, early in the morning is kind of... It's, re- it's folksy religious. It's not like a... Sure. worship song right well for sure 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 sure, sure. Well, that's I'm what i mean though anything. is that like like what mike's saying it's like it could have been something more uh you know personal i guess in the sense that like it was different but like it was it still a religious Dylan. song yeah or something yeah it could have been the stones it literally it could have been like later beatles tracks all like very popular and people are yeah, yeah. playing but he didn't uh yeah. well yeah i mean but i think there would be more period specific right because i think that song is 62 yeah so it should be he would have done um Fuck the pain away by peaches. Wow. Sure. Um, oh, that joke didn't go anywhere. Fine. Fuck yeah, you guys, I, mean, I guess. It definitely caught me off guard. <laughs> um, I actually don't have trivia for this one. Um, oh, I have some like behind the scenes stuff. I already wove in the stuff I had, but uh, yeah, I didn't have any like official trivia. Uh, oh yeah, there were there were a couple things. So um, the scripts that Harry has on his desk that he gives to Joan, those are real scripts that the show had gotten a hold of for like research and stuff like that. And so they were able to use like real scripts from that time to kind of have his props. I thought that was really cool. And uh, yeah, there, there are a bunch of things here that like they said, like people were drinking less in bars, like the whole thing with like the Heineken pitch, like that's all super accurate. Like the commuter culture and everything like that. It wasn't made up for the show. Um, the, Oh, yeah, Matthew Weiner said in a commentary track, I, I got the scene of Betty breaking the chair from a real person who witnessed their mom doing the same thing after discovering an affair. And I remember, like, it's interesting because I assumed that this is another Robin Vice story, honestly, because she's the one who had that, like, real life story about, you know, the mom shooting the pigeons, right? Because she was a writer on that episode, too. So. Uh, Robin Vite said also in a behind the scenes, she, she, uh, she asked if, uh, father Gill would really be smoking during the phone call scene with Peggy, uh, because she thinks that, uh, pre-smoking is like always funny. And I, I definitely have seen pre-smoke like that's like a, like even in like the modern day, right? 
but I'm not Catholic, so I could just be speaking out of yeah. turn here. I mean, um, I, the church that I go to uh, when I visit my grandparents, like when I'm with my family, I remember I'd always like see him smoking outside before uh, church. And when I was a kid, I was always like, whoa, like what the father's smoking. What's all this about? Mm-hmm. Is my life a lie? Is Christianity not what it may seem? You know, that was a, a big moment for me, I guess. The uh, the right the Yahtzee scorecard where uh, we were talking about earlier that says like what women want and excuse to get closer. That's Robin Weiss handwriting. Um, she's the one who wrote that, and it's like the actual one from season one. And um, also, uh, they said like the idea of women buying beer was a really new idea in that era. But you'll find that Heineken was a very experimental brand in the '60s. Like they were doing all kinds of like different things, like out of the box ideas in order to sell. You know, because imported products were starting very like they were in the early stages of becoming more common in the 1960s, and then later that decade is when it like really took off, especially with cars like Toyota and Honda and stuff. Um, and the last one I have here is that they originally, like when they were writing the episode, they were going to have a more antagonistic relationship between Harry and Joan, where Harry was going to be irritated by how Joan is sort of doing really well with the job and like getting on with the sponsors and all that stuff. But they thought it would be way more interesting and subversive if he's not irritated by it at all. The idea is that he doesn't take her seriously to such a degree that he's not even threatened by her at all. He's just sort of like, oh, she's helping, haha, you know, and then he just like moves on. And they thought they thought that that was like way more sort of like, yeah, that's true to life. So also, true. I think it speaks to how inept he is also at his job, but he can't even right. notice that somebody else is doing a way better job than him. <laughs> exactly. That's a great point. Uh, but OK, that's uh, that's everything I had. Was there anything else that you guys want to talk about before we move on to our our lives, our days of our lives, our comas and our soap opera dramas as the world turns etc etc yeah yeah. yes yes i'll I'll say this there hasn't been a realistic promotion or like job decision made in this show yet and maybe it's just because we live in the modern world but like they're all they all happen quickly like in conversations like peggy's promotion uh don's like non-contract uh harry getting promoted to the head of television him getting this extra person it all is just like roger being like okay we'll do that Blah, blah 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 Oh, yeah, like, and then he stands waiting that, for Harry to open the door for him. I forgot about that part. Like, do these people then just, or, or even when, uh, what's her face got fired? Like, is there no HR you have to go to? And if you do, like, are, are you just expected to tell them like, oh, hey, Roger just told me in this meeting, I'm now in charge of television. And they just <laughs> go, cool. Like, yeah. anyways. Yeah, that's a fair point. It's a uh, thing. Things have changed. That's for sure. Uh, things are way more official now, I suppose. But all right, uh, if that's it, I guess we can move on, and we'll be back next week to talk about six-month leave, I think it's called, and I definitely remember this episode, uh, speaking of things to remember. But uh, yeah, see you later, everybody.